Hello, and welcome to the Nick Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption and the flow framework. My next guest needs no introduction, as it is none other than Gene Kim. Gene has done more to elevate how enterprise software is built than anyone I know. He has a magical ability to connect the plight of the individual developer with the technology and business landscape of the entire organization. The mental models and success patterns that Gene outlined in the Phoenix Project and Unicorn Project have done more to point leaders in the right direction than any other works that I know of. So what's so exciting about this podcast is that Gene actually reveals the next book that he's working on, which in my opinion is going to have an even more profound impact on how leaders at all levels think about the intersection of people, technology, and business. So without further ado, let's learn where Gene's journey will take the industry next. Welcome, everyone. I could not be more delighted to have Gene Kim with us here today. So Gene, I think more than anyone I know, anyone that I think anyone I know knows, has influenced the way that organizations think about software delivery, about software at scale, about how we create what, what Gene has been calling these dynamic learning organizations. And I think the, the really exciting thing about this particular podcast is I get to actually ask Gene about what he's working on now, which <laughs> I, I've heard is another book. So I think the amazing thing, Gene, is that these, each of these books for you is this, is this incredible journey. I've had a chance to be in the, I don't know if it's the backseat or as a passenger or running behind your, <laughs> your car on these journeys some, sometimes. And it's just a thrilling experience. And you're in the midst of, of another one of these now. But before we dive in, I've just been amazed at the effect that the Unicorn Project has had on how the people I interact with think and how it's really changed the perspective. It's given senior leadership a perspective on what it's like to actually you know, be there on the ground floor, the, the struggles that Maxine had. And the, just the sheer fact that this book actually made it to the number two position on the Wall Street Journal nonfiction list is, is a testament to the sort of impact it made and is, is continuing to make. So just tell us a bit about what this was like from your perspective, about the journey of the Unicorn Project, and then, and then we'll dive into what you're doing next. Oh, for sure. By the way, it's great to be back on the podcast. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate, you know, all our collaborations over the years and how much I've learned from you and uh, how much of that actually made it into the unicorn project. Uh, for sure. Yeah. I, I guess I am thrilled with the way that I didn't think the unicorn project has shown people, uh, what software development is often like in large complex organizations. <laughs> and that, uh, I think, you know, we know, you know, if, if we're lucky, they might have seen Silicon Valley, right? And I think we have some preconceived notions of how productive developers, uh, can be or are in actuality. <laughs> and it's just so sad that in so many organizations, you know, they're in a tundra of technical debt. And what I love about the unicorn project is that, you know, Maxine, you know, who is the best developer at Parts Unlimited, you know, who uh, that was introduced in the Unicorn and in, in the Phoenix Project, right? When she gets exiled to the Phoenix Project, you know, she can't do anything by herself. <laughs> can't build, can't test, can't uh, build a feature, <laughs> can't deploy. And yeah, I think that really describes, uh, you know, the problems that, you know, most large complex organizations uh, have in terms of uh, delivering technical capabilities. And I think that's really kind of at the center of uh, the DevOps enterprise community in terms of the stories that they share. And, you know, the, the leaders in the DevOps enterprise community, I mean, that, that is what they're solving for, right? They are unleashing, you know, the full human creativity and capabilities of all these, of the 18 million developers on the planet. You know, I think if uh, that book has even shown a glimpse of, you know, what that reality is and what it could really truly should be, then I, I couldn't be happier with that. 
Yeah, and I think that hits on why I think this book is so important and why, you know, the way that I related to people who who just don't have some of the, a sense, they've never lived those kinds mm-hmm. of dynamics, right? Which is that there's this aspirational reality that that boards, that CEOs, that leaders want to have in terms of turning the organizations into software innovators. And then there's the reality that the, their teams are actually dealing with, right? Where you end up with these beautiful roadmaps, plans to make the best that, you know, systems of engagement applications, mobile applications and and web experiences. And that just doesn't translate to the to the dynamics that are in the organization, and and I think the the amazing thing <laughs> about the Unicorn Project is it makes in a language that leaders understand it translates for them what these realities are like, and it and has them empathize with the teams with the fact that you can't simply you know have these wonderful strategic plans and roadmaps uh, when you don't have the right kind of you know when you're in this as you said, Gene, this tundra of technical debt. Yeah. So <laughs> right. how have you seen it get interpreted? Because I've I've absolutely I think seen the way that the book has helped uh, bridge some of that gap between the the dynamics that, a, that an individual contributor on a team or a team member who's trying to do great for the organization, great for their customer, is struggling with day-to-day and the aspirations of the organization to, again, become more innovative and survive and thrive. Yeah, oh boy. I mean, that's such a big question. I I, I can give some, some stories that have delighted me in terms of uh, how people have responded to it. I mean, I think one is, the, the as you said, the sense of empathy where you have uh, non-technology leaders reading it and getting a glimpse of the the reality, both <laughs> in the not ideal and getting a vision of like what ideal really could be. And, and you know, specifically, you know, some, some interaction that really made me laugh, right, is the scene where there's a board consultant that comes in and, uh, you know, they've actually allocated more money for contractors to come in and help shore up, you know, the Phoenix Project. And it turns out that all the contractors, uh, you know, are in the same position that Maxine's in. <laughs> they're, they're coming out to lunch and uh, you know, they're still waiting for, you know, license keys and credentials, and <laughs> you know, they still haven't been onboarded. And so, you know, it, it does beg this very uncomfortable question: like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, where's all that money going, right? And uh, all those promises that were made you know, in terms of like, we need those additional uh, people, right, to achieve these goals. Why, well, if, if they're, you know, if they're not actually working productively, <laughs> you know, does, uh, you know, does that mean that we're in trouble? And the answer is yes. <laughs> Yeah, another uh, story I heard was this about, you know, like uh, in a in an outage, you know, this the, the post mortem meeting of just how fragile psychological safety is, and um, you know how leaders can do things that uh, help, right? That uh, you know, make sure. I love this phrase. You know, improvement requires honesty, but honesty requires absence of fear, right? And so there are things that leaders can do to increase fear, right, which suppresses important signals, or uh, there are things that leaders can do to uh, you know create true. Uh, environments that actually foster people to say what they really think, and those are amplify important signals. So, you know, I just uh, I love that you know we're starting to really connect the dots between what is needed, you know, within technology organizations to you know co-create you know value with business leadership. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is one of the fascinating things about the the unicorn project, which is it, it shows this stark mm-hmm. contrast between what great looks like what these ideals are and it's very explicit contrast and then of course what a lot of us a lot of a lot of our listeners are dealing with every single day <laughs> and uh and by the way i'm laughing not because it's funny it is, i'm <laughs> laughing quite the opposite right it's terrible yeah. <laughs> but someday right uh you know it will be more just right and people uh, won't have to suffer <laughs> like this and they'll be able to appreciate the the flow right the second ideal flow that feeling that we have when we're you know able to work be as productive as if we were working by ourselves, but it's better because now we can work with friends and colleagues, right? (laughs) 
Well, yeah, exactly. And I think, I think it, and, and you're right. It's, it's not funny in the cases where people are dealing with these things, but at least it gives them, their teams, their organizations, a, a goal and aspiration to focus on and makes it very crisp and clear. And it's been, you know, ever since the book was published, it is interesting to me how I come back to different ideals over the course of time. And I think, you know, some of these map very directly into the way that you're starting to think about these signals being suppressed or signals being amplified in organizations and how that maps to high-performing organizations and some of the dysfunctions that we see. But, uh, you know, you touched on psychological safety. When, you know, when you first put out the Unicorn Project, I didn't realize how big a problem the suppression of signals from technology teams was in large organizations and how how that really impeded the, the flow of work. So, if you could just tell us a little bit more how you think about these signals, because again, there's there's something that, that you've been constructed here where uh, when the right signals are, are go up in the organization, go horizontally in the organization, we actually get to that to that point of flow, or at least there's a chance to resolve these bottlenecks. And Mixine actually manages to pull this off within her organization. So tell us a little bit more how you think about these signals, because I think to a lot of a lot of us, this is a, a really new concept. Yeah, and so this is what I've been working on with uh, Dr. Steven Spear, uh, who has been uh, a mentor of mine for nearly a decade. And there are a couple of things, I mean, so he is most famous for writing the most downloaded Harvest Business Review article of all time. It's called Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System. And so that was actually based on his doctoral dissertation at the Harvard Business School. And uh, that was uh, he actually worked on the plant floor of a tier one Toyota supplier for six months, uh, so, <laughs> which I thought was uh, just you know incredible. And you know, so he's taken those learnings and applied them not just to the high repetition manufacturing work, but to engine design at uh, Pratt and Whitney, which is a you know, very uh, you know, a creative endeavor to healthcare systems to uh, helping build a safety culture at Alcoa. So th- there were a couple of things that he's said actually there are many things that he said but one of the things that always caught my attention is when he used the word structure and dynamics and uh, the reason i think this is important is that for me it really started to form in my mind the a, a very parsimonious way of explaining why organizations work the way they do both in the ideal and not ideal and, and so that the it's really saying that you know, any organization uh, has a structure. And so that's uh, the way that we organize teams and the roles and responsibilities and the interfaces between the teams. So, you've, you know, I guess I, I love it. Uh, you know, most leaders know about the two R's, roles and responsibilities, but there's a third R, the relationships, right? Uh, so as architects, we would call them the interfaces, right? What are the sanctioned interfaces? What components can talk to each other? And uh, how do they talk to each other? So that's structure. And then dynamics is everything else. And so we can imagine a set of dynamics, you know, as uh, you mentioned, right, uh, where weak signals are of potential failures are amplified, right? Because, uh, you know, uh, we have tone at the top that says safety is the number one thing. The, you know, when someone pulls an andon cord in the Toyota production system, the first thing that someone says is thank you, right? And those amplify weak signals. Um, or we can imagine a scenario where, you know, these failure signals are suppressed or extinguished entirely. <laughs> and so, you know, if uh, everyone's afraid to tell bad news, you know, if that causes people to, like, not say what they really think or say what they really see, <laughs> right, then, uh, you know, suddenly, you know, you end up with a, a dynamics that lead to not great outcomes, or maybe even disastrous outcomes. And maybe just to add one more thing, a very kind of recent aha moment for me is that I, I think that you can actually predict whether an organization is high performing or low performing just at lo- looking at the communication paths in other words like in the you know do you have a communication where communications are dominated by 
up and down communication up and down the org chart. So in in the uh, you know in the, the unicorn project, right? In order to get two engineers to talk to each other, you had to escalate up two levels and then down two, or maybe up eight levels and down eight, right? Just to do what the customer asks. But imagine another scenario, which I think is associated with the high performers, where the majority of the combination, the majority of the communications are happening within the teams or between teams, and they're happening at the edges. And escalation when they occur, they escalate one, <laughs> right? Uh, not eight. And so, you know, I think that's what the Toyota Andon cord is, is that, you know, if someone has a problem, they pull the Andon cord and in, you know, in most cases, they can be resolved by the team lead, right? If they can't, if they can't resolve it in 55 seconds, it may escalate to a group area lead, right? But these are showing that people can solve problems locally without, you know, vast escalations and without vast disturbances in other areas of the system. And so really the, I think for me, the aha moment is, these up and down communications tend to be very lossy. They tend to be slow, right? To get two managers to talk to each other takes a week. To get two VPs to talk to each other takes a month, right? And so, uh, and you know, the the information flowing up is very incomplete, slow. So that means integrated problem solving across two functional specialties are going to be, you know, not ideal. Whereas if you can get them embedded into the same teams, right? You know, that's a very fast problem solving dynamic. And so. I think in control theory, the four axes of you know these type of communications, it's uh, speed, frequency, fidelity, and accuracy, right? And so you want you know uh, fidelity and accuracy in the planning processes. You know, uh, so when leaders plan, you know, we we want them to be very specific. You know, we want them to write things down. We want to be very them to be very thoughtful in terms of how they organize, but. That is not the dynamic we want in operations. <laughs> like when people are solving problems, right? You want those, you know, to be, you know, especially in, let's say, military operations and production operations. You know, you want fast, frequent communications. Uh, does that resonate with you, Mick? Yeah, I mean, it, it completely does. And I think it, the reason it resonates with me because I think it's you're you're laying out a new set of tools that I think leaders and organizations and and everyone trying to get towards the high performance can use because. So often I've you know, seen these amazing efforts to get to this, these points of flow and feedback and, and joy go sideways. And then at an organizational structure level and an operating model level, uh, leadership is just starts blaming the culture, right? It's the, the culture is the problem. And then, and then actually uh, teams start blaming the culture. The, the leadership culture is the problem. And I, I just so often find that that line of thinking is just a, is just a dead end because, you know, and everyone's now putting up slides, how you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast and these, these great kinds <laughs> of uh, Drucker quotes and, and such. But we, when we dig in, I know my experiences are when you actually start digging in, okay, well, what's the problem with the culture? And then, you start asking and talking to people or you know looking at actually some of the system data and what you see is the way things are structured you've got a team who's incredibly frustrated because they've been waiting for input for for 3 weeks like that, you know, <laughs> that that meeting between those two VPs that that's had them completely blocked and unable to deliver on the needs of the business the customer and then of course getting blamed and all of this so i think the really interesting thing here is that this is actually a, it feels to me like and you're creating uh, and w- along with Steven Spear, a new way for leaders to think about organizational structure that can maximize flow or that can impede flow. And mm-hmm. we just, I feel like we just haven't had those tools. We know, we know value stream flow is, is good. We know that when you, you don't have these wait states, you don't have these bottlenecks, you don't have these long queues, things are better. But how do we get them from the organization point of view to that point? And again, I think the, the that's exactly what we're lacking. So uh, would you say that you are creating those tools for us and you're going to put all of this in your new book? 
Uh, yeah, and so like uh, you know, the book uh, we're targeting end of twenty twenty one, maybe early twenty. I'm sorry, twenty twenty two, maybe early twenty twenty three. So it's like at the point where you know you're really in the early stages, and so I'm really on a learning journey, just trying to clarify my own thinking. And I can't tell you how much of that is informed by you know the regular discussions that we have, you know, twice a month. Uh, if I can just add one more thing, so you know, the the if you think about sort of the cognitive kind of characteristics of work, right? You have you know, up front, you have the planning, you have rehearsing, and then you have operations, right, or performing. So you want the performing, you want the operations kind of in that fast mode. Uh, you want the sort of the planning, uh, you know, in that slow mode. But you return to the slow mode again, you know, during retrospectives, right? It's like when you ask the question, are we achieving our goal, <laughs> right? This is when Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal asked in Team of Teams, we're winning tactically, but are we winning strategically, right? And then the answer was no. <laughs> no, it's like something drastically different is needed, right? So again, that's that's the kind of that's the type of thinking we need for that assessment and improvement area. So if I could wave a magic wand, I'm hoping that what what this does is provide some more practical tools to be able to describe kind of what makes for good culture, what makes for uh, bad culture, right? And there's something that I find very satisfying about this very parsimonious, you know, almost mechanistic <laughs> way of kind of describing how organizations work. I mean, uh, when I say mechanistic, I mean, you know, it, it's almost like I've even he heard Steven Spears say, you know, you configure the system and then you let it run, right? So, Configuration is a structure, yep. <laughs> you know, dynamics is the run, right? It seems like an absurd, reductionist way to view the world, but I'm finding it, you know, to be incredibly useful to describe, you know, scenarios where we've seen like that's high performing and scenarios that we know is not high performing, like team of teams, right? Before, right, uh, in the kind of the bad old ways, uh, they were, you know, they were larger, uh, they had better technology, they had better intelligence, and yet they could not dismantle the terrorist networks in Iraq in 2004. And it's reason, the reason is that uh, you had the intelligence analysts, Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, all working in different functional silos, and for them to actually work together involved vast escalations. <laughs> so when they were able to embed into mission-oriented teams uh, where they could work in a simpler structure with a shared goal, right? the majority of the communication is happening at the edges, and a 22-year-old intelligence analyst or a, a drone pilot uh, can actually see something and actually do something about it and resulted in you know uh, sighting to capture in 45 minutes. So, you know, it's uh, I think we can say the same thing about uh, Devon Ops, right? In the bad old days of the Phoenix Project, <laughs> right? Uh, and Fat Parts Unlimited, you know, uh, Devon Ops you know, was exactly the same dynamic in the battled ways. And when they embed into mission-oriented teams, uh, it allows for not only better outcomes, but, you know, innovation at the edges. So uh, they say that the goal of science is to explain the most amount of observable phenomena with the fewest number of principles, confirm, confirm deeply held intuitions and reveal surprising insights. For me, you know, these kind of tools are, are, are absolutely doing that for me. Yeah, I think, and I, I think that's exactly what we need, right? Is we need a simple reductionist set of tools where, again, we're not solving this massive culture problem and thinking that you know, everyone needs to attend a whole new set of seminars every every three days, but actually <laughs> understand how we're preventing people from doing the great work and having those communication lines, which they, they tend to know are effective, right? They they, they will actually, even if they have to you know, go through the, the the square problem, they'll they'll find their ways. The organization will make those lines. So hey, can I give you like one thing that I just heard recently that excited me? So, please. you know, uh, we we're talking about like the control theory, right? The notion of frequency, speed, uh, fidelity, and accuracy. So, you know, when you can get two 
people from two different functional silos doing integrated problem solving, and you have them working side by side instead of through tickets <laughs> or you know through uh, reports. You know, not only is the information loss much lower, you can actually generate information. You can actually generate knowledge, right? And so I heard the story about a chief chemist named Beth in a large pharmaceutical firm. She said, "Hey, instead of you know having the biologist send reports, how about you?" present the data to our entire team. <laughs> and so that resulted in a whole bunch of new knowledge being created that allowed them to actually better target and prioritize pharmaceuticals with more accuracy and deliver them to market with less speed. So I just, I think these are, uh, and you can see that's probably the same dynamic you know, occurs in product teams when you can get the product owner directly in the team with the engineers. Amazing breakthroughs are made, just like, uh, and you see the same pattern with a uh, team of teams. So I think kind of these, um, for me, it was just a kind of an aha moment to be able to really say, here's how they're similar, regardless of the domain. Yeah, I think you know, one of the conversations we had recently is what, what a lot of organizations experienced in the past year is yeah. removing some of the structure constraints and, and seeing how quickly things can move. Earlier today, I, I heard an amazing story of what happens in, uh, in, in disaster response, right? Where all of a sudden procurement processes change completely. Uh, you can, you know, people at the leaves of the organization can actually put purchases on their credit card just to get generators, just to get electricity, just to get emergency supplies where they need to be. And so I think this was, again, the fact that, you know, you, you've now incepted this notion of, Structure and dynamics, and to my mind, I think, and to a lot of other people's, I think it shows us the power of that. Right? If we just change this part of structure to allow this this faster flow, in this case, to the edges, how much more quickly can we actually get the kinds of results? And I think it's it's been absolutely amazing for me to see the number of large enterprise organizations who release some of those structural constraints due to the pandemic, and all of a sudden saw a kind of faster flow <laughs> that they thought was impossible within within their large and complex organization. Yeah, in fact, one of my favorite presentations from DevOps Enterprise last year was from the uh, Nationwide Building Society. It was the Chief Operations Officer, uh, Patrick Eltridge, and the Mission Leader, uh, Janet. And they're talking about how there were th- things that they had to do you know, in this dire emergency that normally would have taken, you know, quarters that they could do in weeks, like provisioning out VPN access for <laughs> every company employee. I think what global pandemic has showed us is when uh, during these situations of extreme urgency, uh, when we're willing to, uh, you know, throw away the rule book, miracles are possible. <laughs> right? And so the, I think that brings up the incredible question. It's like, uh, how, well, how come we can't do that all the time? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and again, and this gives us a language to to think about, okay, what structure did we change? What communication lines did we enable, right? In order to actually get to that kind of that kind of pace. So I think again, you're giving us a new tool for how to think about that. And I think that just relating back to I, I just have these very vivid memories of this call that we were on together with Dr. Steven Spear, where we were talking to one of our colleagues in an organization that had a very problematic structure that suppressed some signals uh, <laughs> that shouldn't have been suppressed that, and those signals caused outages that shouldn't have happened or the, that suppression caused outages that shouldn't have happened, things that should have been resolved. And of course, the question is always, okay, well, how do we get from where we are today to where we need to be? How, how do we prove this out? And you said something I'd, I'd not heard before, Gene, it's the configure and then run. And it just made me think of what Dr. Steven Spear said in this particular conversation is, well, how do you do this? Just make a model line. Just create a place in your organization where the structure is what you think, you know, what the structure needs to be. And it is around flow and value uh, rather than around all these, these things that have built up and, and then see how that works. So what's your sense of that? Because this whole configure and run thing, I think there's 
I, I see so many organizations trying to go through the next massive reorg, right? To mm -hmm. implement the Spotify model across 30,000 global IT mm -hmm. staff and hope that structure works. But there's nothing empirical to that, right? They haven't learned. There's no feedback cycle. It's there, There's no learning from actually, did the structure work for us? Right? This is mm -hmm. something I think one of the big problems of some of the really big agile transformations is it's this big cookie cutter being applied without any learning for how, the, how did this new structure that we implemented work? Did it enable the right kinds of flows or do we have some regulatory constraints that that maybe the the last organization that this that this didn't so can you dig a bit more into this into this configure and run idea yeah and i'm a long way from i think understanding and knowing kind of uh how to do the transformation but i mean I, I, here's some things that i have learned that i'm, I'm finding very dazzling in terms of uh bring clarity so when you have these you know you have the structures that are dominated by up down uh, communications, uh, which are slow, lossy, and so forth. And then you have the uh, the more dynamic and energetic configurations where the communications are dominated across, you know, across the edge, across the vast functional specialties. And so I think there are two characteristics that are created that are kind of a prerequisite. And we're calling it simplification and stabilization. So simplification means that you are creating a value stream, that uh, they tend to be simpler, meaning more linear, right? So I know who my inputs are and I know who my outputs are. And so that means like, um, so the, between the chief chemist and the chief biologist, right? And the chemists and the biologists in their relative organizations, right? Uh, they they have an input and an output. And they tend to be more explicit than less explicit. I guess you could call it more explicit, less tacit. <laughs> so people know who their upstream and downstream customers are. And so that's how you end up with, uh, you know, the, the value streams. So everything doesn't, I mean, I think the most obvious one is an assembly line <laughs> where like everyone just stays in one spot on the assembly line and the assembly line moves work from one station to another, right? But, you know, you have things like work centers where work is passed to another. You have team of teams where it's the Rangers, intelligence analysts, and the Navy SEALs. You have ones where it's like requirements, uh, design, <laughs> uh, develop, deploy, operate, etc. Right. I mean, those are all you know uh, flows that are more explicit, more linear, and and then the, I think the really other exciting characteristic is that of stabilization. If you can just so one of the stories that blew me away uh, when uh, Steve told this to me. He said back in the 1990s, he went to visit a Toyota plant in uh, Japan with his mentor and advisor, Dr. Kent Bowen, uh, at the Harvard Business School, and a VP of manufacturing from a big three auto plant. And uh, they saw many amazing things. And one of them was the fact that they were doing uh, 60 line-side store changes per day. <laughs> so so I didn't know what that was. So it's basically at every work center, there's a, it's basically the racks where you put the inputs, the raw materials of which you need to process, and then put in the output rack, right? And so um, the VP of manufacturing from the American big three auto uh, manufacturer said that's crap, right? Basically, you know, in disbelief or um, you know, basically saying they're lying, right? Because he said we did six in one day, and we ended up shutting the plant down for three days because suddenly parts weren't where they're supposed to be, and uh, you know, we had the we couldn't do final assembly, and we couldn't ship a car for three days. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think in our community, you know, the the equivalent story is the two thousand nine. You know, uh, all spa Hammond presentation that said we're doing ten deploys a day every day at Flickr, right? And I think most people vomited when they heard that right. story because, yeah. like, um, I think our reaction was we do ten a year and that's not so good. Why? What maniac would do ten a day, right? And, and I think what it what's in common is that 
at the Toyota plant and at Flickr showed that you could do small changes. Things were loosely coupled enough where local changes could be made without bringing the entire you know place down. That it didn't cause global catastrophe, chaos, and disruption. Whereas in the big three auto plant and in most you know, many IT organizations, everything's so tightly coupled together that you can't change anything, right? You change one little thing, and just like in the uh, you know American manufacturing plant, the MRP, you miss one setting in the MRP, and suddenly parts aren't where they're supposed to be, and you can't ship cars. So I think that stabilization, right? The ability to make local changes, make adjustments, that is obviously one of the properties of kind of this and nest and prerequisites of kind of high performance of dynamic learning organizations. Oh, one more thing. And so I think what's exciting about the team team story is that you now see these different structures and uh, mechanisms to broadcast learnings. One of the, it, it reminds me of the uh, daily poll they had. It was 90 minutes a day, 365 days a year. It was basically the top leaders, uh, you know, reaffirming the goals, uh, reviewing kind of the actions from the previous day, and then uh, people asking for help, right? And there was a way for, you know, 3,500 uh, people on this call to trade, you know, say what's working, what help is needed, groups to form, uh, to swarm problems. And it even became a mechanism of, they found that in order, the constraint to doing raids was often helicopter transport or ability to access you know, surveillance drones. And so uh, what ended up happening is everyone knows the goals. People would actually horse trade for spots and be able to say, hey, I think this mission is urgent. <laughs> I agree. How about we swap spaces? And so I think uh, this emergence of an internal market that allowed for kind of replanning at the local levels versus at the macro level, uh, I think it has to be another property of what's possible. Does, does that resonate with you, Mick? Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. And I think this is, I just want to go back a little bit because I think the, the, the thing that you've challenged the DevOps Enterprise Summit audience with for the, the last several years is, is how do we actually elevate what we've known to work for technology, what we've known in terms of enabling fast flow, enabling this, this kind of delivery of value uh, to organizations, right? And, and you call these things that dynamic learning organizations. I think what, what you're saying right now is that some of these changes become very easy, right? It's like how many times you deploy it per day, how, how uh, quickly learning is incorporated into a flow and feedback loop, right? And it's going straight back to the, uh, to the Phoenix project, of course. So, the now the fascinating thing about this is that you're actually now looking at this lens uh, at this through the lens not just of uh, high performing tech companies but but actually organizations delivering all sorts of value right so how much i guess can you just tell us a little and like i think so much of what of the literature that a lot of us have been exposed to really does come from manufacturing and how do we apply how do we learn from these manufacturing concepts mm. and apply them to to technology organizations but you've now gone in in this latest ex- exploration journey Gene, you've gone you've gone well beyond that to studying other kinds of teams and structures in the end of of knowledge work of which you know software is a is a type. So you're it sounds like you're starting to see these common patterns of loose coupling of basically work and information being able to be processed quickly at the edges of changes becoming easy. There's this notion of stabilization and simplicity as well. So I guess it, it, what what do you see happening? Are we going to is it are we learning from technology or is technology are technologists now going to learn from actually huh. effective organizational structures? So uh, I like you am a uh, avid follower of and a convert of uh, Dr. Colada Perez, and you know I think I find her narrative of you know in any given technology revolution it will create a new 
management model that you know, can properly exploit <laughs> the, the new technology you know, that's been created. And I love that notion that scientific management, mass manufacturing has led to a set of beliefs and a cohesive set of practices uh, like the Gantt chart, like you know, project management, like rigid, strict command and control structures, like outsourcing development <laughs> and, and technology. And there is probably another set of beliefs and practices and uh, tools and techniques that lead to things like Agile and DevOps and uh, the Toyota production system and you know, resilience engineering. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I, I think in my, I think my, our aspiration, right, is really to describe what that is, right? So, you know, just as uh, Taylorism has led to uh, the set of practices, you know, I'd love to be able to be able to describe what are those principles that lead to these things that uh, you know we all may are, maybe are aware of, uh, but be able to say that's actually all part of the same cloth. Uh, so that's kind of uh, my hope, and I think. I'd love to be able to stitch together is to say that, yes, it is the technology community that is pioneering it, but it is actually the same thing as what led to the effective harnessing of the atom of what led us to be able to send, uh, you know, a man safely to the moon and back, right? You know, the Toyota production system, team of teams, those are all actually, you know, the same patterns at work. Oh, by the way, I got to share with you a book that I had so much fun reading. So I got to interview Dr. Ron Westrom, uh, famous for his Westrom organizational typology model. Uh, Dr. Nicole Ford is going to introduce me to him in an email. <laughs> and so uh, I actually was able to interview him for uh, my podcast. And in preparation for that, I realized that he had actually written a book on the Sidewinder missile program in the 1960s. So uh, and it was just utterly fascinating. And, and, and basically, he contrasts uh, the wild success of the Sidewinder missile program to the failed Falcon missile program, which eventually became the Phoenix missile and the Sparrow program. And it was just amazing. Like what he said, you know, you had integrated problem solving in the Sidewinder group. People, you know, the mechanics could talk to the engineers, could talk to the technicians, you know, very fast feedback. You say, you know, let's try something and you would, uh, the machinists would actually make it and you could try it that evening. Whereas uh, the Falcon program had, you know, uh, I think it's like 10 to 100 times the number of engineers working on it. At one point, three to 5,000 engineers working on it. But they had prematurely specified what the architecture looked like. And so even they had more engineers, in some, uh, in fact, some people say smarter engineers, <laughs> but they were constrained and couldn't actually unleash creativity, whereas the much smaller Sidewinder group really broke ground on so many different fronts. And uh, it was the most successful missile program uh, you know, in history. Yeah, I think, again, we're, we're missing these tools, right? We're, we're missing, <laughs> I think, organize, so organizations, leaders are missing a tool for understanding why, let's say, a SpaceX can yeah. deliver so much more with under 100 people working on it than massive programs can. And I think <laughs> if you can, and you know, just like the examples that you gave, right? I think, again, if you can uh, give us the language for understanding how to describe what's yeah. what our effective flows, what are ineffective, why adding that next set of 100 or 200 people might actually have the reverse effect because all of a sudden the, the communication patterns are, are not what we need them to be, right? Or, yeah. you know, and this is why I think we've seen, you know, I think you and I have been studying these very effective patterns, right? Where where there's independence and autonomy for value streams, things tend to flow faster. When there's large amounts of dependencies, you get into these communication patterns that, that are unsustainable uh, and self and often self-destructive. 
Well, I have one more story, by the way, that uh, we had talked about before that I, I just uh, think really motivates your notion of a model line. So I got to spend three hours with the chief operating officer of one of the four healthcare systems here in Oregon. Yes. And uh, we visited the uh, uh, vaccination clinic that's happening at the Portland Convention Center, where they are vaccinating 8,500 people per day. You know, but that was up from 250 to 500 to 2,000. You know, and so that, and just to see the sheer amount of creativity and ingenuity that was being unleashed, you know, in the service of the most important societal mission we have on the, you know, which is to vaccinate everybody on the planet as quickly as possible. And it was just amazing to hear this person reflect on the lessons that he's learning and wants to take back to other aspects of healthcare. And, you know, he's saying that the other uh, the chief medical officer who was with me, he said, you know, I'm in an emergency department and uh, to change the you know brand of tissue we use requires weeks of committee meetings. <laughs> and the answer is always no, right? You know, how can we integrate, you know, these, you know, incredible learnings and integrate them into, you know, potentially all aspects of healthcare delivery. So, you know, I just, I just think it's just shows that, you know, the power of that model line and yet another example of, you know, this terrible thing that's happened over the last year, you know, how it's just uncovering, you know, uh, a different way of working that I am sure is going to, you know, dramatically change how we're going to be working in the future, you know, for the better. Yeah, but I think, again, only if organizations realize you know, that th- they see that this is possible. They see that by changing the structure, all of a sudden, a, a speed that was unfathomable before is possible. And I think, you know, sadly, we have many counterexamples where, where that didn't happen, right? Where <laughs> we've got the, the, the same structure remain to try to do something as uh, bold as the rate of vaccinations that, that countries have had to deploy. And then the place will now be able to, I think, apply your approach of structure dynamics to understand why in some places these things happened very effectively, like the the example of Oregon that, that you just described, whereas in other places, it didn't. There was all the budget, there was all the <laughs> desire, but the structure never allowed these dynamics of fast immunizations to happen. So yeah, Gene, it is, I mean, to me, it's mind-blowing, I have to say that, again, some of these concepts that you know, I've been hyper-focused on how they work with technology and uh, communication and collaboration in, in delivering value to software, you're actually now you know, identifying in in a much broader set of of I think what what you're, what you're calling it is right. It's these dynamic learning organizations that are going to define how high performance, uh, how we how we strive for high performance in the age of software. In fact, oh, uh, sorry, I get so excited when I talk with you, and, and so I think kind of in the you know I, I would imagine in this book, I, you know, in the first two paragraphs, right? You've been thrown into this uh, competition. You've been you know you've won the tournament that got to where you were. You know you yet you find that your competitors are beating you. You know, designing things for the customers uh, in less time with less effort, <laughs> right? Uh, and and it, despite the same starting line, the same talent pool, the same <laughs> you know uh, the, the same physics, right? Uh, but the, the line that I, you know, I just would love to land is that it's as if your organization is actually fighting you, and I, I think that is actually true, right? If the, <laughs> if you're not appropriately thoughtful about the the way you structure the organization, <laughs> the roles, responsibilities, and the relationships, well, then you will get the wrong outcome, right? And I think that I, I just, there's something really delightful to me, right? That, that, that we might have a better tool to think with in terms of, you know, how do we, you know, solve problems that are more than one person, <laughs> right? When you have a team of teams, right? How do you actually configure them in a way so that uh, you can actually get that you're 10 times better, right? Not, not 10 times slower. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think this is... It's reminding me of early on in my career when I realized that high-performing 
developers were, you know, they, they seem to be a hundred or a thousand in some cases times more productive than the average developer, right? And the thousands were, but you know, you know, the Linux true yeah. worlds of the world in terms of how much value that we're able to create through, you know, through their software. So, and how much value that's, you know, today it's something like the, the Linux kernel is providing the, the economy. So right. I think the, the thing that I'm absolutely observing play itself out right now is that I think we've understood this somewhat at the team level of high-performing teams, lower-performing teams. But I think this is just less well understood. And, and the, the empirical data that I'm seeing is that we see organizations with a flow efficiency. So just the efficiency of how they're delivering value, uh, that's one or two or three percent. And then we see organizations with, and this is, your, I think, to your point, with the same budgets, the same numbers of staff, just organized differently with a different structure and a different set of dynamics that's evolved around value delivery. And it's evolved much more incrementally, who have flow efficiencies of 60, 70, 80%. And that, that actually translates, when you scale that to a significant number of staff, you, you're, you're, you know, you're getting into these one or two, maybe three order of magnitude differences. So... I think again, I, this is this is the the key thing that we need to help leaders understand how to approach uh, architecting yeah. for flow for value that's missing today. And again, just just where where culture is being blamed, we're not giving a culture a chance. That when when your organization is fighting against you and you feel that every single day, <laughs> culture does not have a chance. So I think yeah, <laughs> illustrating to... that in the opening chapters would be very effective. So. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I mean, yeah, we've had some conversation about how um, you know. The best uh, in, in in these tech giants, the best developers are put on dev productivity, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the the most experienced and the next best um, most experienced ones are put on backend systems, and you know the most junior developers are put on features, and which is like the opposite of what we often see in many IT organizations where they put the best developers on features, <laughs> and the next best ones on backend systems, and the most junior ones and the summer interns build systems and dev productivity platforms, and. Yeah, I think uh, what I find exciting about that is that I think that's such a hint that there is a, a big advantage uh, in in being big, right? Uh, you can hire you know the best talent, and you can get leverage on the platforms that you build. Uh, so I, I talk so often about the trip that we made together to uh, visit Chris O'Malley at Compuware, right? And as he he told us about the Robert Murdoch quote, "Big uh, does not beat small anymore." Instead, it is fast being the slow. And then yeah. the Chris O'Malley corollary, right, is that the only thing better than being fast is being big and fast, right? And I think, you know, uh, when you can unlock, when you create the right structure and dynamics, then, you know, you can, size can actually be an advantage, right? Yeah. Uh, you get to, uh, you know, learn from the best developers and engineers on the planet, right? Uh, and, you know, that has multiplicative effects as well, so... Yeah, and then again, I think for I'm sure this is going to happen to other people listening because it happened to me as soon as Gene started talking about this. Uh, uh, this, I, this is it. It's been years. These journeys of yours are quite long. So it's probably been, been over years since we get this bug of of structure and dynamics in my mind. But I think as you said that, I realized you know why why is it so important that those best developers are on dev productivity? We know that with software, the the structure of the software actually changes the dynamics, right? And the software is <laughs> sort of the, the broader sense, and this includes the the operational software. So if all of a sudden I can get myself, you know. 10 TensorFlow environments to, to pump data into without talking to anyone, any VPs. Well, guess what? <laughs> the, that structure allows me to accelerate with my machine learning experiments or, or, or efforts much more readily. So, and, and that all of that, of course, comes from the developer productivity people who are able to you know, make it very easy for any developer to get these environments, to connect to a pipeline, to automate all of these sorts of things. So I think I think there's again using using that language and that tool uh, because Software and infrastructure is just such a key part of 
the the structure of a of a technology organization, investing in the people who can adjust and evolve that structure in support of better dynamics is a really good investment. <laughs> so I, I, I've got to I, I, uh, I got to tell this story, uh, and I haven't told you this before. So I, I got a chance to talk to Admiral John Richardson. So he, he was uh, chief of naval operations for four years. Yeah, so that's the highest ranking uniformed officer in the U.S. Navy, responsible for you know three hundred thousand sailors. And he was describing you know the leadership dynamic within the U.S. Navy. So uh, apparently the U.S. Navy the, the navies are famous for decentralization, right? Because because you know, not so long ago, you know, once they went over the horizon, you couldn't talk to them anymore, right? So you had to, you know, write very good orders, right? Uh, and then you uh, captains had a lot of autonomy. He was actually he talked a little bit about that in terms of like as a leader, you know, you invest a lot in terms of building relationships, uh, creating a common set of values, you know, specifying what the mission goals are, right? Uh, you know, the the uh, you call it commander's intent. Here's the things we're trying to achieve. It's good if you do this. Turn over the card, right? Here are things that we'd appreciate if you don't do this because that's not helpful, <laughs> right? If you do, if you lose communications, right? You know, here's some uh, procedures, and then you let them go, <laughs> right? Uh, and be- and he said this line because by the time communication goes comes back to headquarters, uh, the fidelity of the communication is so low and the speed of the communication uh, is so slow that there's very little useful feedback that you can give back, right? And so as you talk about that VP getting you know for approval, I mean for me that was a very startling thing to hear because it kind of reframed in my head what that role of the senior leader is. So what is it? Uh, but so given given that's not it, and so often <laughs> uh, this this structure is actually that, right? It's you know, approvals and and such. Right. Uh, what what is the? I mean, maybe you're saving this for the book, but what what, no. <laughs> what is I mean, the? I I, uh, I think uh, I, I know it has something to do with the planning and preparation, <laughs> right? Uh, enabling operations, right? But you can't reach down and you know uh, meddle in. Daily operations, and you can't require them to have to get approvals for every little thing, right? Uh, because the tempo of operation so far outstrips the capacity of you know the up and down uh, communication structures, and then they get back involved in assessment, improvement, progression. Right? Did how how are we doing? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what adjustments are necessary? Is the mission wrong? Right? Uh, do we need to change the mission? Uh, so in my mind, I mean, that was a pretty. I love these kind of things that bifurcate activities right fast and slow <laughs> you know uh, you got leaders are involved in uh you know planning and preparation and then again at assessment and improvement but not typically in operations right that just uh, to be able to maybe oversimplify but you know as, as you the advice you gave to me right i think that's very helpful because it actually says what the what the roles really are at the most senior levels yeah and i think this I think this should provide more clarity to again the role of leadership, right? If if it's leadership can change the structure, and it's actually very hard for uh, individual teams to change the structure. So for me, I know in terms of my my growth over the slow growth over many years as a leader, mm-hmm. one of the things that impacted me most, which I think again this is a much crisper and more precise language that you have here, Gene. But Ben Horowitz, I read this in one of his blog posts, but it was not immediately forwarded to you, I think. But uh, it was <laughs> it was in uh, the hard thing about hard things where he talks about communication architecture. It's the, the responsibility right. of the CEO, of the leader of the organization, and maybe leader part of the part of the organization to actually set up the what we would now call the, the structure and dynamic to enable an effective communication architecture and and again i think your language here is much richer to prevent too many things from flowing up so that because that's much slower 
And the, yeah, I, I, these are there are a lot of I think new concepts here as well, right? To actually understand and be able to measure how much slower value gets delivered to the customer to the mission uh, if it has to go up versus if it was just just horizontal. <laughs> but fundamentally, I think what I just heard you say is that it is the role of leadership to actually change that structure to make sure that the right signals are amplified to make sure that uh, there's room for impro- improvement of daily work across the organization and f- and the improvement of daily work for leaders is to really improve the structure to support support the right dynamics so. okay so gene tell anything else we've missed with it with uh, in terms of key things that have delighted you that surprised you on on this journey of of helping us as a as really as an industry understand what dynamic learning organizations are and then and then how to help bring our, our teams our organizations towards that yeah i think there's one thing that has convinced me that understanding this is important. And it's that functional specialization is not going away. <laughs> that, right. you, know, yeah. when you look at healthcare, the number of specialties have gone from like, say, two in the 1950s to like hundreds now, yeah. right? And the same thing is obviously happening in technology, right? You got not just operations, you got uh, virtualization experts, container experts, Kubernetes experts, right? uh, uh, Kafka experts, right? I mean, it's just, uh, uh, you, you can't, do a good job, you know, using Kafka. If you don't have experts somewhere that actually know how to, <laughs> you know, what to do and what not to do, and so I, I think what it says is that the degree of which we actually need to do integrated problem solving is increasing across a, an ever widening field of functional specialties. And so I think the reason why we've been able to get away with it for the last century is that the functional specialties was small enough <laughs> where uh, you know it, we could just muddle through. Whereas now, you know, I think it's clearly not working. In fact, oh my gosh, Mick, I saw this incredible statistic. Uh, uh, Steve, I saw Steve showing it to a, a group at uh, MIT Sloan. He said, "You got Moore's law, right? Where the uh, you know CPU computation is doubling every eighteen months, uh, maybe increasing these days. And it's uh, in the pharmaceutical business, it is actually going the other way. For every given billion dollars, how many therapeutics can you actually get to market? And it's actually going down over oh, the last you know, decades. Yeah. And, and so uh, the hypothesis or the conjecture is that it's the same phenomenon at play. Where the ever here's a way to measure." the retardation of productivity as you increase the number of specialties. And and yet we were able to get a farm, you know, we were able to develop a COVID vaccine, you know, within, you know, a year and a a year of, you know, mass awareness of the outbreak. So it just shows that again, it during dire emergencies, you know, we can get things done, but you know, when it's not an emergency, uh, things are not treating us so well. Yeah, that you're just reminding me of in my when I took a semiconductor course and we were talking about Moore's law. The professor actually said, "Well, you know, Moore's law is 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 on track. Things are things continue doubling. This was years ago, but the cost of fabs of plants is actually rising <laughs> even faster than Moore's law. So th- there's something the complexity of of plants got to that point where it's actually I think you and I were delighted by the fact that processor performance is now coming from changing the the, the structure of the processor itself <laughs> by right. sticking memory right next to <laughs> the CPU right. as Apple did with the M1 because again the, the complexity of fabs is probably now somewhere near the top of of complexity that that we can handle organizationally right just like the complexity of bringing a new drug to market and testing it is, is probably at the limits of of human what the complexity an organization can manage so 
again, just amazing that that you are giving us a, a language for understanding these things, because I think one of the, and this is back to, I think, it'd be, I, I can't wait for the next things that you're going to say around the simplification. I think in the end, you know, you're finding tools for, or this is a way of reasoning about how to reduce complexity and how to reduce organization complexity and how to, you know, basically move away from that complexity, causing all of these communication lines that are ineffective to ones that actually that deliver value. So... So Gene, where, I guess, I'm sure you're going to have a ton of people really curious about learning more on this. I know we've got the kind of, you know, my favorite learning event or one of my two favorite learning events, the ones in Vegas, ones in London uh, of the year or virtual now, but but still just as amazing, uh, even though we don't get to see each other in person anymore. But the, the learnings have have definitely not slowed down and the relationships that come from it are, have just been tremendous. So tell us what, you know, where we can learn more. Tell us what, what we can expect to learn at DevOps Enterprise Summit, London Virtual. And yeah, anything else that you'd like to wrap up with? Yeah, I'm I'm so excited that we're putting together what I'm hoping will be the best DevOps enterprise uh, ever, just as we've done uh, year after year. So you know, we have uh, some amazing stories. Uh, Julia Harrison is speaking from the UK Government Digital Service about how she developed capabilities that helped every government agency in a time of. Uh, uh, you know, dire global pandemic. Um, uh, you'll be speaking about uh, lessons learned in terms of uh, you know how treatment plans uh, have worked and not worked when they were misdiagnosed, which I'm very very excited about. We have an executive team from Nationwide Building Society. Oh, Corey Quinn, uh, the cloud economist, will be talking about uh, top things that uh, we get wrong <laughs> in the cloud, which is great. Awesome. Uh, we have uh, an amazing story from HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue Collection Service, in terms of uh, like what they did, you know, to make the lives of UK citizens uh, easier again in a you know the economic downturn in a century. Oh, and um, again, Dr. Ron Westrom, uh, who many have read, but few have actually seen or heard from, uh, he will be presenting. And I'm so excited that uh, he's going to be sh- uh, sharing in more fidelity than I think any of us have had in terms of uh, his decades of research, both in healthcare and nuclear reactor safety operations and aviation. So yeah, it is a phenomenal set of experience reports, uh, expert talks, and I-, I am super looking forward to it. Excellent. Me too. And I think, you know, for those who haven't attended, I think one of the, the lasting effects of it is the, the fact that it's, uh, the whole community comes on Slack and you're connecting all mm-hmm. of these individuals specialized in very different areas. But again, where I think that, you know, the collective relationships that come from this actually provide, you know, to me and I think to many others, uh, the kind of dynamics that makes, has, you know, made this year much easier, right? As we've all mm-hmm. remained connected throughout this, so this past year. So Gene, any last words? You know, the help I'm looking for is, uh, make this is really kind of one of the first times I'm actually speaking publicly about this thing that we've been working on. Uh, and so it's hard to say you're working on a book when, you know, you as an author, you also know that this <laughs> is a very, uh, treacherous, curvy path. Yes. Um, I, I, I'm impressed with how bold you've been. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I guess I, I am actually very much looking for feedback in terms of, you know, how does the language, uh, resonate with you? To what degree is it helpful? Any suggestions uh, or examples would be fantastic. So if you uh, are have any feedback for me, just you can uh, reach me on uh, probably Twitter is a great way. I'm at Real Gene Kim, or you can email me Gene K at itrevolution.com. Yeah, and I think I do encourage everyone listening to do that, right? Because once these ideas get in your head, they, they won't come out. I can tell you that from experience, and they will give you better tools for evaluating what works. Again, some of these ideals that that you want to see in your organization, what's suppressing them, what's what's stopping them, and how we get to again this this, this faster flow and and 
and these high-performing organizations. So Jean, thank you so, so much. I hope everyone sends you, uh, you know, the, the ways that they've started adopting this already and then feeds that, that back into your book because I think it's just been amazing how you incorporate and can always riff with, with the community through Twitter and elsewhere on how these things apply and in the end make, make everyone's days easier and make our organizations more successful. So thank you so much. Uh, delighted to be here, and I can't wait for our next bi-monthly call, twice a month call, uh, of which so many of these ideas uh, came from. <laughs> so, <laughs> catch you soon. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Gene. A huge thank you to Gene for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me in my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags one or Project to Product. Gene's Twitter handle is at RealGeneKim if you want to reach out to him directly. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Pride to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.